This season of Cancelled Movie Report has been funded by the amazing people who support us over on Patreon. Hello and welcome to Cancelled Movie Report, the documentary podcast series that talks about the best movies that Hollywood never made. My name is Michael Campbell, but you can call me Campbell just because we're friends. And joining me, as always, is actor and comedian, Mr. Eden Porter. Thank you very much for having me, Campbell. You can call me Eden Porter, even though we're enemies. If you've listened to this show before, you will know our love for two books. Tales from Development Hell, The Greatest Movies Never Made, and The Greatest Sci-Fi Movies Never Made. Oftentimes, they're quoted as sources for our research. And this time, we thought we'd go straight to the source instead. And we're thrilled to have on the show... The writer for Empire Magazine and author of the aforementioned books, Mr. David Hughes. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Good to be here. Now, yourself, Eden, and myself, we all have an interest in cancelled movie productions, movies that never were, a niche topic that occupies a particular corner of the internet. Uh, How did you first get interested in this topic? Um, I think I've just always been interested in sort of um, fi- things that never were. Like I'm, I'm <laughs> interested in designs for alternatives to the Eiffel Tower or, you know, cities that were dreamed up but were never built. And I guess because I love film, it was just a natural crossover to, to maybe I found out about a film that never got made once. I thought, oh my gosh, there must be loads of these and I should get a book on it. And in the mid-90s, there was no such book. So... Damn it! I have to go and write it and respect <laughs> yourself, myself yeah. if I want to read it. So that's how that started. It was it, the first, um, the greatest sci-fi movies never made was probably, I probably picked that first um, because I had a big interest in science fiction in those days, and it was also a way to cover kind of superhero movies and stuff. And then I wanted to do a more general volume, which was um, Tales from Development Hell, a few years later. But I think they both came out within a few short years of each other. And I've updated them periodically over the years, and uh, quite a few of the films in the original volume of the greatest sci-fi movies never made have since been made. It's nearly 25 years since I started writing it, so um, yeah, it's weird how things shake out, you know. Well, one of the films that is featured is the Project Isobar, and that's uh, in a completely original script that we're going to talk about. So without any further ado, let's get into it. The film project Isobar is many things. A classic tale of Hollywood squabbling and producers running things into the ground. A star that wanted control of a project. An idea that ballooned from something else entirely. It serves almost perfectly as a cautionary tale of what can happen to a script that's put through the life cycle of the studio system. Almost to the point of satire. But before we talk about Isobar, we need to talk about another script. We need to answer the question, what the hell is Dead Reckoning? How many episodes are we doing here, Kimber? (laughs) This could could be a season in itself. (laughs) But before we even get to what the hell is Dead Reckoning, let's set the scene. The year is 1987. (gasps) Can you hear the synth? Can you see the rollerblading? I'm three years old. You are three years old. Okay, cool. I'm taking my back back to... This features something that we have covered on this show before. It, it's a, it's a, it's, it's something that will come up time and time again on this show, and has come up previously in episodes like Crusade, episodes like James Cameron's oh. Spider Man, which is of course Carol Co. Pictures. Oh yes, we're back. We're, <laughs> we're back. back. We're back. We're back, baby. So Carol Co. Pictures, uh, 
they're riding high. They've produced a couple of big hits and nothing could go wrong, as we know. Correct. Now, don't worry. We have covered them before, but next episode, we will get into again why this all went wrong. (laughs) But they brought the rights to a script called Dead Reckoning. So what the hell is Dead Reckoning? (laughs) Well, it's a a middle-of-the-road Humphrey Bogart movie. I forget, from the 1950s, I think. I forget which year exactly. (laughs) But it was also the title of the first script that um fight club screenwriter jim jim ules i'm not sure how to say his name let's say jim ules um uh wrote in about 1987 so about uh, what's that 36 years ago um now if you were gonna if you were a, a young guy straight out of um uh, film school or, or you know UCLA or whatever, and you wanted to break into the film market by writing a spec script, you could do a lot worse than write Alien on a Train. So that's what Dead Reckoning was. Um, And I mean, this is like 1987. So it's in that kind of like, you know, predator period where, where, you know, you can, you can have a, a, um, an Aliens 1986. So, you know, clearly those were the kind of influences. And I think that was a very commercially minded move on his part yes that's kind of what this project gets known as if you look it up online is alien, alien on, on a, a train. train and this is right in our wheelhouse Campbell. it is right at our we wheelhouse. love aliens and, and we love uh, modes of public transport <laughs> they're the two things we, <laughs> we love <laughs> and our friend we don't even need to name it <laughs> yeah exactly friend of the podcast friend yeah. of the podcast so this is why I think so many people have requested that this movie be covered on our show. So, yeah, that's that's what this, this was a spec script called Dead Reckoning that was Aliens on a Train or Alien on a Train set in futuristic LA. And it was written on spec by uh, Jim Yules. So Carol Coe... There's, so there's another, there's another Jim. There's another Jim. Is this going to get confusing? We don't know that Jim, though. He's not a friend of the no, podcast. No, 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 no. He's not our He's mate, Jim. an acquaintance at best. <laughs> So this was brought by Carol Coe, who were riding high, by the way, off hits like Total Recall and Robocop at this time. But genre films, absolutely nowhere So Carol Coe brought on board the producer Joel Silver. Obviously, huge producer in Hollywood. Produced Die Hard, for God's sakes. Hi-Ho Silver. Also, yeah. Also, like at the top of his game at this point, hottest producer in Hollywood. Here's something I find really funny. He liked the script, but he was dead set on a different name for the script. Well, Joel Silver had um, he had a title um, that he liked called Isobar. And Joel Silver is one of these guys who likes to attach things to, um, to a, it doesn't matter which project, if he's got a thing that he likes, like he <laughs> likes Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, Leonardo <laughs> da Vinci. Yeah. And he wanted to do a sort of Leonardo da Vinci caper thing in like a Die Hard movie <laughs> or a, you know, one of the other movies that he that he worked yeah. on with um, Stephen D'Souza. And Stephen D'Souza kept saying, you can't put like this uh, sort of semi-supernatural, uh, all of this in like a, with John McClane, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and then of course, Hudson Hawk came along yes. and yeah. Stephen D'Souza, who wrote the, the uh, um, some of the early drafts of that said, well, this is the one that you do Da Vinci with. And of course, the rest is movie masterpiece, you know. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not knocking Hudson Hawk, I actually. So do I. I actually, yeah. So 
uh, yeah, so basically Joel Silver had this title called called uh, Isobar, mm. which he had, um, I, I guess he, he had it from a script that he'd read by Jerry Cameron, <laughs> right. which was about a a mutant pro wrestler in the future <laughs> oh, yes. uh, who's going to potentially be played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, right. Um, so Joel Silver calls um, uh, calls Jerry Cunningham and says, oh, can I have the title of, <laughs> uh, of your script? And, you know, I want to use it on this other thing. And Jerry's like, I guess, okay, sure, Joel. <laughs> you know, the most powerful producer yeah. in Hollywood at that point. You don't really want to turn him down. But in the meantime, in, in the in-between mm. time, before it became Isobar, when it when it still had the title of Ed Reckoning, there was that period when uh, Ridley Scott yeah. uh, was sort of came aboard what was kind of working titled The Train. Right. And obviously yeah. in the book that allowed me to make lots of puns about, you know, climbing aboard and, you know, <laughs> then disembarked from the train in 19... No, I didn't do that at all. Um, <clears throat> kicking myself now. <laughs> and he brought on production designer... H.R. Giga, oh, with whom he had worked yeah. successfully on Alien and unsuccessfully on the on the uh, prototype of of Dune. Yeah. Um, now Giga is one of those guys who, if you give him an idea, he kind of takes it and runs with it. So he ended up like building a giant train in his backyard. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> and uh, before before they'd done any contracts or anything, because he was kind of excited, you know, I interviewed Giga about this. In fact, he ended up doing the introduction to my, to my book, which was mostly complaining <laughs> about the terror terrible time now there's video footage of this train in his backyard is there not uh, there is yeah and also um he ended up using a bit of the train as a dream sequence in um in uh, species i think you're right there was just there, there's uh, there's footage that he probably filmed himself and then sent to 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 ridley who by that stage had forgotten that he was ever attached <laughs> <laughs> Bless him, because he had so many projects on the go at the time. There's a section in, in your book where you talk about the fact that at one point Ridley Scott was no longer involved, but just forgot to inform Paul Giga, <laughs> who just continued to work for months on end on these projects. But that's so normal. I mean, you probably know the story about um, Alex North finding out that his score for 2001 A Space Odyssey hadn't been used when he went to the premiere. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you just, I, I know it sounds terrible. It sounds like all these all these guys are, are sociopaths, but actually, you know, they're just being, they've been ghosted. I mean, they're, they're ghosting their, their co-creators. It's so mad. And of course, you know, st now, uh, until today, you do lots and lots and lots of work unpaid. Um, while you're figuring out whether or not you're going to sort of um, actually, you know, get onto the project. Now, the other thing was um, that, that I want to stress that's related to more than just this project and things, something that we, we often forget is that um, these films are made or not made. Um, sorry, they're not made or not made in a vacuum. There's all sorts of other stuff going on at the time and one of the things I try and do when I'm when I'm doing the, the the books or a story about a film that never got made is look at what else was happening at the time now you remember that Ridley Scott at that point was coming off someone to watch over me which hadn't been terribly successful legend which hadn't been terribly successful um I guess you could say just it's it's a, only a few years before that he made Blade Runner which was not terribly successful even though obviously you know it's it's now seen as a classic um so I think, you know, his idea of getting back onto a, a, a kind of a sci-fi project, it probably seemed like one of the things that he should consider. So I can kind of see why he was interested in doing this, because there was already something in that project that, that's quite attractive. So...
Now, he did mention someone there, Eden, Stephen D'Souza, mm. who is the screenwriter of Die Hard. Yeah. And a Joel Silver guy. He's so a, yeah, naturally, when Joel Silver came on board, he brought on board Stephen D'Souza. And the script that we have that we are going to read from is the Stephen D'Souza script, yeah. version of it. But you can see that already this is starting to change just through like the name has to change what, here. What, and, what yeah. is Isobar? Because it doesn't jump off the screen. It doesn't, but it is explained within the movie. But that is a... Is it explained by saying... I read this on another movie and I really <laughs> yeah. liked it. Well, and the I only stole it. Is, they have to explain it is because Joel Silver wanted it. <laughs> so they have to write are you seeing yeah, great. It. It's a, exactly. I do there was a funny quote from Geiger in your book, David, which is uh he said because he was never formally hired. He said, I never got engaged and I never got paid. <laughs> uh, something to live by. Yes. But this is something that I was excited for because if you read on the internet, everyone says, oh, Isobar, Ridley Scott movie, and it was going to be Alien on a Train. But I don't think that is the movie that this would have been. So I want to dissect what it actually would have been. And it starts to evolve even further when Sylvester Stallone comes on board. He was going to be the star Love of Isobar. And he, he was very keen to make this, but he was also clear that he didn't want it to be sci-fi Rambo. And he wanted it to be a movie that had more environmental themes. Oh. In fact, we've got a clip from him. We've got this from the Eyes on Film Twitter thread. We've got a clip of Sylvester talking at the Cannes Film Festival about this film that's about to go into production. And this is what he said about it. Well, let's start with the, the film you've come down here to publish. That's Dead Reckoning. I mean, that's not even written yet, is it? No, and, and that's just a substitute title. But what that'll be is, I think, a very fascinating film that'll deal with um, the future shock of ecology. Because God knows the way we're heading. We need uh, something to really heighten the awareness. In other words, it's a green movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think so. Yeah, because you have a very apocalyptic view of the future 10 years hence, don't you? Yes, because, God, I mean, <laughs> it, it, I hate the way that people are, are misled and uh, down a primrose path that, that it'll all be okay. It won't. I mean, at the rate it's going, things are just irreversible. The fact that uh, animals are becoming extinct in an alarming rate. Extinct. Over. Finished. There is no more. Well, we can also go the way of the dinosaur. It, it doesn't take much. The balance is very, very, very delicate. We're a delicate organism. Wow. So I had no idea. He's got such a passion about how, how long ago was that? This, that was from, I believe, either 89 or 90. The script that is long ago. dated 1990. So that long ago, we were talking about like changing the planet. Yeah. Great yes. taste. <laughs> what, what's happened? What's happened? Uh, I love like it. the 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 kind of stuffy uh, British proposal. It's kind of a green. <laughs> <laughs> quite a quite a dire oh. outlook on ten years from now. Oh oh yeah oh yeah. <laughs> so yes, Joel Silver had brought on board Stephen D'Souza to rewrite the script, uh, and then Jim Yules is still also working on his script. And all while this is happening, Ridley Scott has left the project at this point. But there were some other people joining the project. I remember that before Stephen D'Souza was even involved, um, they had, uh, I, I think Joel had got Roland Emmerich interested as a potential <laughs> director what? for this. Now, um, Roland Emmerich at the time, I think, had only done Moon 44, but it was one of those, you know, there are like musicians, 
musicians yeah. you know lots of musicians will say oh yeah you know the the is amazing or uh, or whatever and 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 people that aren't necessarily massively mainstream successful but every year well it's the same in film and so when you have a guy um who's come out of germany made a film like moon 44 that that seems to be like have a commercial mind to it and has ambitions to make a bigger you bring him in on go and sees you know uh, these little meetings that you have and like well what would you like to do you know and obviously he's very keen science fiction guy so he came in with dean devlin his writer and and producer yeah and said you know i want to make a science fiction movie and obviously somebody said well we've got this one that we're looking at called isobar blah 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 and that was very attractive to roland and and dean who didn't like the script and were immediately wanted to rewrite it themselves <laughs> and they turned it oh well, they brought on their conceptual artist and 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 um production designer michael meyer um the conceptual artist who's done most of emmerich's films um, yeah. in the sort of the key period and production designer Oliver Oliver Scholl they did some incredible um, conceptual work and they turned this thing into a kind of uh, it was almost like an art deco train sort of made of wood this right. is one of those things oh. that Stephen D'Souza would challenge straight away he'd yeah. say well in a world with no trees why are you building trains out of wood you know what the hell is going on here but I think they they wanted to make it into this kind of luxury luxury liner but that was sort of either underground or on the on the surface a train made of wood this is reminiscent of the, uh, the um, alien, alien three, three yeah. wooden <laughs> yeah, planet yeah, yeah, that yeah. we did yeah. and it, it, that doesn't really make it into steven's script because obviously he but Hated this it. is this is what is funny so roland wanted a rewrite so roland was coming off a film called moon moon 44 that was his breakout hit but then yeah. he did another film didn't he do moon the most recent moon Moonfall. Yeah. He did do Moon. I didn't even yeah. put it together. He's, he's bookended his career with, with two moons. moons. <laughs> <laughs> so he wanted to rewrite. This is where it gets interesting because Yules is still working on his script. Oh, Dean no. Devlin now wants to write a version. But of course, Joel wants Stephen to suit her. So, so they're three all writing versions. Oh, my God. And Joel Silver hadn't actually told them that they were all writing individual versions. So Emmerich and Devlin only read about this, like, in the trades. <laughs> oh, shit. And apparently Joel Silver never read any other version except for D'Souza's from then on because that was the guy he wanted. Yeah. So, yeah, there's just weird thing where it's like, this is already such a mess of a production. This is crazy. But D'Souza, he claimed that the original version was too much of a ripoff of Alien. And, in fact, he described it as a ripoff of a ripoff, you know, like he said. Yeah. It's very generic. And he and Sly had ideas to make it bigger and more original. And it, it kind of transformed from like a small alien ripoff of alien on a on a train, train. to more of a Roland Emmerich style, large budget, disaster style yeah, yeah, flick with like a big ensemble cast. Yeah, you're right. With with um with sharing DNA with like the Poseidon adventure yeah. and yeah. you know which is probably the films that that Emmerich and Devlin came up on you know watching yeah. those kind of big mm. ensemble disaster movies and Stephen D'Souza was definitely familiar with that with that genre so you can totally see where where the strands go back to but this is this is the film that we're about to get into are you getting a picture of it now how are you picturing okay, it so at the moment? so now we're we're moving away from alien on a train yeah the, the crux of it is still alien on a train, on a train but now mm-hmm. We've got environmental green things. environmental yep. stuff. We've got the world's post-apocalyptic yep. ending, and so and it sounds like the scale's gone up quite a lot. It so has, big, yeah, big, big, big. But this is when the project actually really started to gain a lot of traction. So 
this time, uh, obviously, Geiger, uh, Giga had, had left, but they brought on board to design this new creature, uh, Rick Baker. Famous from uh, Werewolf in London. Oh, where, yes. Like uh, famous creature creator, did all the Men in Black movies. Oh, great. Like Rick Baker was designing this creature. There's some concept of the creature that is leaked online. You'll find it on our socials that we'll post. The, the creature. The, the, the creature that had been designed. Does it look anything like um, Jean-Claude Van Damme in a pink <laughs> prawn <laughs> costume? <laughs> it, funnily yeah. enough, yes. <laughs> uh, where'd you find this, uh, Rick? Uh, it's in, in a jungle. jungle. <laughs> So D'Souza finished his second draft on December 1st, 1990. And this is when cast began being added. So we had Sly. Yeah. Sylvester. Yeah, Sylvester. (laughs) Uh, But obviously uh, his leading lady, uh, Kim Basinger. Basinger? Basinger? (laughs) Basinger. (laughs) Yeah, she was cast as the female lead. uh, An Isobar trained employee named Sari. Okay. So that, that was her role. And then also roles, because it's a big ensemble cast. Oh, good. Uh, one role uh, was was designed to be played by Jim Belushi. Oh. More re- of a comic relief yeah. kind of role. And there was a part specifically written for film icon Sophia Loren. Oh, wow. Well. So they, they were aiming, like these people were all coming on board. Production. It's a, a good train pun there. By the way. Oh, thank yeah, you. Yeah. yeah, I didn't even think of it. My mind is just firing <laughs> on so many cylinders right now. Another plane. Yeah. Plane, plane trunk. Did they do cylinders? Cylinders? I don't know. <laughs> I think I lost it. I lost the thread. Will you back? Will you back? <laughs> uh, production designer Dante Ferretti began designing sets, and Academy Award-winning costume designer Marilyn Vance. Uh, she did Predator and Die Hard. Yeah. She was creating what D'Souza describes as very retro future. So this is this is happening. This is happening. This is like stuff is being built. So advanced was the project yeah. that set construction was due to begin within a week. This is correct. Yeah, this is happening. This is happening, and it's a big budget thing. So I think now that we have a, a mindset, this is the framework. Yes, yep. and now uh, David is actually going to join us again next episode to describe where it all went wrong. Thank you very much, David, for joining us at the moment. Now, before we get into the film, I'm very excited because I want to bring back an old friend of the show. Eden, what is this I'm putting in front of you? Oh, my God, Cambo. Where did you find this? <laughs> this has been in storage? The bell. The bell is back, baby. Yes. Now, this one's a little bit different. Last time we used the bell, all the way back in uh, Batman Year One. Yeah. It was about what's been reused in other films. Yes. When this we re- when we realized something and we recognized something, we hit the bell. That's right. Yeah. Now, this one is a, a sci-fi film set in the future. So I want you to ring that bell anytime. They make a prediction about the future that either turned out to be wrong or, or right. Okay, so, e- so any prediction, really? Because there's a few in here that are very interesting, I think. Oh, okay. I, okay, I'm on, I'm, on, I'm on the case, Cambo. Now, we need to give story credit to listener of the show Tex Horner. Tex Horner actually helped us out by breaking down the script for us. Oh, really? So huge thanks to Tex. Has Tex basically done our job for us? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tex, you're welcome back anytime. <laughs> yeah, Tex helps us out, break down this script because it's, it's a monster of a script. The script has a lot of subplots, and I've, ah, man, I've shredded it. Like, oh, oh, really? I made it pretty lean. Um, just to get through it. Just to get through it. Yeah. It's, it's a long script, there's a lot of subplots. I'll point out when subplots might have appeared that aren't necessarily. I could go main. anyway. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But here's what I'm thinking we're going to get into the film. Normally, we start the projector. But this is Carol Co. in the early 90s. Okay. So I say, let's pop in the VHS. Oh, yes. <laughs> and get into Isobar. 
we see a beautiful vista of downtown LA. But as the camera moves back, it's revealed to be an old billboard. The LA we see before us is but a shadow of its former self. This is how it's described in the script. Now, the horrible reality intrudes as the camera pans to a strange desert. Between rocks and dunes, we see a tantalizing glimpse of a buried civilization. Gusts of wind drive black rain and spirals of sand in crazy patterns. And moving amidst them are two figures, suddenly visible in a crash of purple lightning. Oh, purple lightning, yeah, Cambo. I haven't seen that before. Crazy future lightning. So this is an uncle and nephew duo known as Old Gibran and Young Gibran. That's what they called the script. Gibran. There, there's a lot of weird names. Yeah, in I was going to say Gibran. I, I think this might be like a, a sci-fi movie has to have weird names. names. Yeah, because we're in the future. Pretty much no one has a normal name in this script. So they're wandering through the uh, the wasteland, uncle and, and nephew duo. They're wrapped from head to toe in, in thick industrial cloth. They've got primitive air filter systems on their back. And they meet two men. And they're in slick, fancy bio suits. These two men are called Essica and Lardner. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to be throwing a lot of names at you. Don't worry if you don't remember. I'm not going to remember any of these names, Hilo. I'll point out who you really need to call. Essica and Largo. Lardner. Oh, Lardner. Keep up. Come on, come on. (laughs) I've instantly forgotten them. The two men. This is my child, Lardner. (laughs) Lardner. (laughs) (laughs) The two men follow the Gibberins to an old abandoned building. Telling them that the signal that they're here about, it came from in there. The two men enter the building. It's formally a lab. They mention that something's got out. We hear squirming as the two men spot something small in the corner, but we can't quite make it out. A tense scene unfolds in which the two men manage to corner this unseen creature, a slithering, squirming, tentacled being. They freeze it, enveloping it in a burst of violet light, and put it into a metal tube that they've brought with them. As the two men exit, Old Gibran asks about the payment. The Gibrans were supposed to be paid in oxygen. <laughs> Essica takes out his pistol and shoots him no. in the head. Oh, what? Classic villain move. That is huge villain move. Young Gibran, shocked, he makes a break for it as the gunfire kind of follows. The two men... Essica so I don't need to remember the name Gibran then. You need to remember Young Gibran. Oh, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> the two men enter a shuttle at a rail station, hook up their canisters to the life support system and remove their masks. And they start to head back underground with their new containment tube. So on oh. top of the world, it's like toxic up there. Yeah. And and they're, they're not supposed to be. Is there. this a future prediction, Cambo? Oh, uh, your uh, hand's hovering over the bell. Yeah. Leave it just okay. a second. <laughs> I will just shout out this uh, script. Obviously, we have our scene, break, uh, scene recreations like we always do. But this script has a lot of setup. So you just, don't have yeah, to forgive yeah, me setting a lot yeah. of this up before no, we get there. Okay. I forgive you, Cambo. Uh, young Gibran, he actually manages to slip into a vent next to the old train station and he escapes down underground Oh, too. as well. Okay. As the shuttle moves down towards distant lights, we see it. The Los Angeles of the future and the year 2016. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, go on. So this is 2016 yes. and we've got, what, an underground LA, LA yeah. network. Uh, underground okay. the world. 20, 2016. Wow, what was I doing? Pretty much exactly what I was doing <laughs> pre-COVID, really. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's a the heady distant future of 2016. 2016. Love it. The world will be Love gone by 2016. It. The entire city of LA is now moved underground. 
floating sidewalks carry pedestrians while the roof floating above, sidewalks yeah yeah they're like oh these, okay. yeah, like uh, they're kind of like like ledged sidewalks all up the walls walls yep the roof above the city has these giant air purifiers and they're furiously pumping away and the camera pulls back to see the entire city the grand sweeping yeah. shot new los angeles train station it's both retro and futuristic all in one. Oh. We see a map of the world with a connecting dotted line between each country. And above it, we see the word ISOBAR. Oh. It's an acronym, I-S-O-B-A-R. Intercontinental Superconductor Oslomagnetic Ballistic Railroad. Well, if that isn't a load of horseshit. Can I, can, let me tell you this. That doesn't spell ISOBAR. <laughs> That's the first problem. Spell it out with me. I S O B A R. Yeah. Intercontinental. Yeah. I. Superconductor. S. Oslomagnetic. O. Ballistic. B. Railroad. Missing a letter. They give up the A. That spells Isobar. Are you kidding? No, I'm not kidding. It doesn't spell Isobar. They really, they really drop the ball. They're clearly going well. Ballistic is B and A, I guess. No, no, no. no. Really, that's the coward's move. Yeah, that is the coward's (laughs) way. So this is a super fast train system that travels between countries. Though they do mention that Canada and Mexico, they're actually now part of the US in this map. So Canada and Mexico, oh yeah, they've all merged into one, and it's the US. It's the US, baby. (laughs) What's that other film? Oh, I'm thinking of Godzilla versus Kong, where they have the underground. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they yeah. connect everyone up yeah, through the yeah. world. Yeah, through that. So a brand new train is being showed to us. This is the new lay. Think of it as part international cruise ship and part bullet train. Yep. Essentially, think Snowpiercer. Snowpiercer, yeah. yeah, yeah. I was going to say that's It's the Snowpiercer really, train. Yeah, it's the Snowpiercer. Now, we have been sent some concept art for this train oh. that we have been told is... Not for public consumption. Some of it has leaked online, and if anything was available online, we will share it on our socials. Yeah. But we, we can't share the concept up. But I thought maybe we can describe a little bit about how this train looks. Let's have a look. Let's have a look. So this is the concept design that was done for Roland Emmerich. And it's got a very, like, retro future is very much the style of it. It's kind of art deco. Oh, yeah. It's sort of... um. Uh, Metropolis. Metropolis is the word I kept coming yeah. to as well. Yeah, yeah. A lot of like big gold, uh, like like trims and mm-hmm. very ornate yeah. carvings and yeah. It honestly looks great. It does look. Really Wish good. I had a seen it. <laughs> <laughs> Wish I had a seen it again. We will share what we can, um, but every now and then we might refer to some of this concept out. So there are reporters and photographers flocking to take pictures of the map and the train. And we learned that the train is about to make a big first. The first non-stop trip to Europe. On board will be all manner of important people, celebrities, and everyday folks. So kind of think like Titanic. Yep. You've got a, a mixing yeah, of all you've kinds got the, of classes. Yeah, the upper and, class. Exactly. Yeah, first class. Yeah. Gibran bursts forth from the luggage cart and he disappears into the bustling crowd, three stories down, into wall-to-wall people. Like there's just... So Would you call people. it a mat, like a massive humanity, just all sort of pretty much? It. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and everyone's yeah, come yeah. to see this train take off. Yeah, it's here that we meet our cast of colourful characters that we're going to meet along the journey on the train. So first of all, we meet Sari McCoy, Kim. Yeah, she's the purser of the new lay for this inaugural long distance run, 
and she's introduced. So what's a purser? Uh, like a like a flight attendant, like head of oh, the, okay, head of the okay. staff yep. for the train. So she, yeah, she takes care of. All is that the a future people. word, or is that a word that I just don't know? I think a purser is a thing. Okay. Uh, <laughs> she's introduced with a lot of emphasis on her stockings and her long legs. Now there is reason for what? this, but it is, it is a little bit creepy. Unless she <laughs> uses her long legs to get them out of a jail or something. More, yeah, the, like. more the stockings, in fact. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, she's described as athletically built with a prickly character. Don't you love it in like the nineties when men would just describe women? It's like <laughs> prickly, but uh, but athletic. Yeah, always yeah, athletic. Like Demure. Yeah. She's accompanied by a junior officer and a rugged bodyguard named Hook. Hang on. Hook. Say that again. Hook. One more time. It sounds like a Scottish person saying <laughs> hook, doesn't it? Hook. Put on the hook. 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 Okay. We also meet Essica and Lardina, who we okay, met earlier. Yeah, they're okay. the bad guys. I don't worry, I've memorized their names. <laughs> Dr. Wainscott. Probably the most normal Wayne, name yeah, so yeah, far, okay. Wainscott. Uh, he's a bit of a swarmy character. Um, you know, kind of a See? stiff British yeah. officer. Oh, yes. He looks down on people. Nothing can sink this train. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> there are two suspicious doctors, Scanlon and Ruby. Okay. I like it. I can just imagine the camera sort of panning across yeah, all the yeah. past. Yeah, that's kind of what it is. Yeah. The soul sequences. You start to meet them all one by yeah, one. Yeah, so Scanlan and Ruby are overseeing a 12-foot hyperbolic chamber that's being gently guided from the platform to a medical bay on the train. And there's a life support system blinking Oh, there's away. someone inside it. Or something. Oh. There's a rich asshole, Reggie Rossiter. 50. Reggie. This is, best as I can tell, probably who Jim Belushi was going to play. Oh, is this like... Yeah, he's kind of like a, he's a self-made billionaire type. He's oh, kind of okay. like a, a bit of a selfish, bumbling idiot. Bumbling idiot, yeah. Okay. Uh, and he's also introduced with his long-legged 25-year-old girlfriend. Again with the legs. Debbie. Uh, and Debbie, she's excited because when they arrive in London, they're going to meet King Charles and Queen Di. No way. Are you ki- Sorry. <laughs> Are you kidding me? No. <laughs> Shouted out the script that she can't wait in 2016 to meet King Charles and Queen Di. Oh my God, Camo. <laughs> this is taking a turn. Yeah. This is, this is what, 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 what do we say, 87? Is this, uh, script? this script is from 1990. Oh, this is the 90. Dead Reckoning was 87. 87 yeah, this is, is 1990. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, one, obviously, oh, we all know the Princess Di passed away a couple of years after this, but also. Uh, the Queen would not be dead by 2016. Well, that's a bold call <laughs> yeah. in itself. No, it's not because she like she was so old. Like, <laughs> She's would, been so old for forever. <laughs> you would so, think that there was a chance tits, yeah. that in like, what would this have been, like 26 years? Yeah, she'll be dead but in 26 there, yeah, years. She's probably dead. Nah. That's amazing. She kept her a couple of years after this. We also meet Corbold. He's an international security guy. And uh, Corbold, what do you think of that name, by the way? Corbold. Corbold. K-O-R-B-O-L-D. K. I would not have guessed K. I would have gone with C. Like Corbold. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. yeah Corbold. Uh, so he's introduced by, he's talking about the theft of expensive luggage recently. And he actually asks uh, Reggie and Debbie whether he can tag their bags. And he actually uses an object that's very similar to an air tag. Oh, really? Yeah, Where essentially you can find he's like, like this, this will help track your bag. Yeah, this is so like... Basically, that's happened. They've invented okay. the air tag, yeah. Fuck, man, this film is its yeah. blowing my mind. So he dots their luggage with a bright red dot and he scans their tickets. He kind of like, he says, let me take your tickets here. Here are some new ones with your, your tracking and whatnot. And he says, I'll give you some extra miles just for this inconvenience. So Reggie is now actually stopped at the entrance of the train. The guard informs him that 
No, his tickets are blank. <gasps> the red tracking dot in the bag. That's not an air tag. That's a thumbtack. They've been conned. Oh, no. Cobalt has now made his way into the train. The conductor cannot allow these guys on the train. And with every cliched asshole move, Reggie purchases fresh tickets, but it's a lower economy on the train. Oh, but no. But he pushes their way. They finally got on the train, but they're not happy about it. Now we meet Russ Prime. Russ Prime. The character to be played by Sylvester Stallone. Oh, this is Russ. Okay, okay. Described as in his 30s with a Bogart-like persona. Really? <laughs> I would not describe Sylvester Stallone as a Bogart-like also, persona. Also, I googled. In 1990, Sylvester Stallone was 45. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, think like long trench coat, like like hat on. He's yeah. like, they're doing the old school Play Bogart style. Yeah. Prine steps into a video call booth. He's speaking to an executive, LL Dupree. Can I can I just ask? Is this a video phone call? Is yes, this a video phone oh, call. The yeah, yeah, camera. Yeah. Thank you. Just I checking. feel like that one had been predicted since like Total Recall. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Even 2001: a Space Odyssey. I feel yeah, like yeah. had video yeah. calls. Yeah. So he's speaking to an executive, LL Dupree. Prine's suitcase is full of spy gear, fake ID, voice modulator. Dupree explains the stakes that are at hand. He says the country, the company, and the future are at stake. The core disconnects. Okay, what's going on with this Russ Prime? Russ, this is this is spies and everything. Yeah, it's it's. I'm telling you right now, it's going to be really hard to remember who all these people are. <laughs> there will be a test at the end. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, now makes her way through the staff areas and into the first class cabin, and she actually interrupts Prime who's at the bar attempting to grease the palm of the barman to serve him before the train actually leaves the station, oh. against the rules, obviously. Mate, oh. And Prine is super rude and super condescending to both the bar staff and to Sari. And she responds as politely as she can, but she's obviously very frustrated by it. The train now begins the process of taking off. The sequence shows the magnets in the train starting up. We cut to the outside of the train and the tracks are glowing blue. As all this happens, Brian is inside. He's taking as many pictures as he can with his hidden camera. Staff suddenly scatter as Sari steps forward to deliver her very rehearsed safety trip. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard the Isobar Transpolar Flyer. Today's trip marks the first non-stop connection to Europe since the end of jet travel almost 20 years ago. Many of you have taken domestic maglev trains and you will find this one very similar. In the event of an emergency, the cabin alarm will sound. Oh, I should have brought my earplugs. In various parts of the train, the same speech is being delivered. Gosh, I should have worn earplugs. If you hear this sound, return to your seat and put on your seatbelts. Now, our main safety feature is the survival pod. These will automatically deploy in the case of a subsonic collision or other accident. Ten, nine. Eight, seven, six. When you hear that countdown, keep your arms and legs close to your body to avoid injury when the pod closes. Like this. When the train stops and is secure, the pod will open and you may exit. Since most of our journey will be in ozone alert areas or depressurized subtunnels, you will need the personal oxygen booster under your seat to exit the train. 
Pull this lever and push or kick out the striped panel. If you exit on a monorail section of track, use your Duranet ladder below the exit to descend to the ground. Thank you for your attention, and we hope you enjoy your trip on the Isobar Transpolar Flyer. Excuse me. Sir? Could you go over the part about the safety bars again? If you'd like to review, sir, it's on the safety card on the nearest seat back. I'm sorry, but I don't have my glasses. Weren't you wearing them before? I forget where I put them. Are you worried about the passengers' memories or our safety? <sighs> the passenger safety pods automatically deploy in any subsonic accident. Please keep your arms and legs close to your body to avoid injury. When the chain is secure, the pod will open and you may exit. Entry of what? 8th of August. Underway 5 minutes 12 seconds behind schedule. Person McCoy Sari ID 1134-A displays fluctuating interpersonal skills. So, can <laughs> they, They've introduced Ross yep. as the most yeah. annoying character. Yeah, and, and you know what? So he's meant to be like a spy. Mm. Sort of like a... Yeah, you're meant to be like, what's he up yeah, to? Yeah, and... It, He's the most <laughs> recognizable, like <laughs> iconic looking yeah. voice of this annoying person <laughs> that's asking all these questions. He's yeah. not blending in at all, Cambo. It's the same thing as like the Terminator problem, right? Yeah. Like yeah we yeah. made him to blend in. You made him to, to blend, blend in. in. <laughs> yeah. But yes, he is continually bugging the staff. He's always annoying them. He's taking pictures and no one quite knows what he's up to. So the train now rises three feet above the track oh. and the train begins to move forward. The entire bottom of it is a series of moving and rotating curved magnetic plates. It's the maglev train. Yeah. Flashes from media cameras can seen as the, as the train takes off. It's a big thing. Yeah, big thing. Yeah. Champagne bottle smashed the side of the train. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. We cut to a private medical car where Ruby and Scanlon, the two doctors, are. Scanlon is visibly weirded out by what's in the tube that they're carrying there's a creature in it. The creature from the start. Ruby, yes, exactly. Ruby explains that they have to subdue it every hour for 20 seconds by supplying with a small amount of electricity that's internally stored in the tube. It's simple. What could go wrong, Cambo? Through frosted glass, we can see the creature is a little bit larger than it was before. A fresh pod forming off one of the ends of it. A rudimentary face and limbs are beginning to fall. Oh. Ruby flicks the switch as the lights on the train flicker and the creature lets out a wail as it's subdued. The creature's mouth opens in pain and it receives the shock and then it goes limp. Its body begins to split and a new growth begins to come from it. Scanlan is visibly uncomfortable and grossed out by the whole thing. We also see outside Essica and Lardner. They see that the lights are flickering and they think, right on time. Yeah, good. Okay. So that's what they're doing every hour for 20 seconds. They yep. need to subdue this thing with electric shock. This is, it's a good it's a good theatrical device yeah. to have that something has to happen and like if there's a power outage uh -huh. or something like if that something or someone gets knocked out. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's good. So we actually follow Scanlan uh, into the first class cabin. Many first class passengers, including Prime and Corbold, they're kind of gossiping about like, what is this tube that, that's in one of the cars? And do you know how much it must cost to hire an entire private first class cabin just for this thing? Rumors are swirling. 
maybe, maybe it's a, a sheik that's waiting for a heart transplant. Or maybe, maybe it's actually Michael Jackson and he's off to Europe for some youth treatment. <laughs> oh, <come laughs> what? Youth treatment? Yeah. Michael Jackson, what year are we? 2016. Yeah, yeah. So he's gone. He's gone. <laughs> he's, he's gone, gone by that yeah, point. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. He's, he needs a hell of a lot of youth treatment at yeah. this point, I think. <laughs> or maybe a little less. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Scanlon, he exits, and Corbold actually follows him now. Because remember, he's up to no, he snuck onto this train. He's up to no good, yeah. Camo. Another argument is now seen between Brian and Sari. This time it's about his meal and the distinct lack of options. Pran continues to poke at Sari, and Sari continues to act defensively but politely. With much concentration, Sari agrees to fix his meal, and as she leaves, Pran takes even more voice notes about the encounter, ending his recordings by uh, commenting on her ass. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. He continues to complain throughout the first act of the movie, essentially. Really? So why are we, why are we liking this character? It, it, it'll, it'll, it'll come clear. Okay. Everything from the hyperallergenic pillows to the color of the pantyhose that she's wearing. Again, with the pantyhose. Truly odd and disruptive behavior. We learn a little more about Gibran as well. Uh, this is one of the subplots I've mainly cut, apart from some information you need to know. Yep. Uh, he actually bonds with another younger passenger called Lisa. Uh, that's a pretty sub, normal name. Su- yeah, we? subplot about her being one of the few fertile women that's left in the world, so she's very valuable, and she's being transported across to make sure that they can harvest eggs. And yeah. Oh, so this is a children of man. A little bit children of man. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, a little bit children of man. I've mainly dropped that plot because it it's Didn't kind of not well. actually that. It, it works for the theme of the world, but not the actual plot. Uh, but we learn a little bit about the history of the Bedouins, which is what Gibran is. They live outside of the safe bubbles in the new world. He explains that his family are from a long line of Bedouins, and himself, he's actually the owner of Burbank. So he's just claimed it as his <laughs> okay, own. Okay, yeah. right. Uh, and he explains to Lisa that he has followed his uncle's murderers onto this train, along with something even more sinister. Lisa's intrigued by him, and throughout the throughout the film, he's just continually like crawling through ducks and stuff in the train, like sneaking around, like Newt, like Newt, yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Like Newt. Back in the medical car, Scanlan returns uh, to Ruby with some lunch, and they sit down behind the hulking storage tub and they flick the switch. The hour is up, and it's time to subdue the creature. But suddenly, Corbold enters the car unseen. He hears the wailing from the creature. He wipes the frost from the glass and he sees the creature and he gasps, backing away, straight into the arms of Scanlan, who he didn't see sneaking up on him, and a big fight begins. Oh, this guy's like wow. snuck into this car and he's not meant to be there. Ruby looks at the screen of the timer of the bursting lightning and it's ticking away 23 seconds, 24 seconds. Scanlan plunges a knife deep into Corbold's chest. What? Corbold lets out a scream and drops. We cut now directly to an after-dinner show. See, they have famous entertainers on this train putting on a show. But interestingly, how they're performing isn't in person. They're holograms. <laughs> Mate, this is Coachella. This is Coachella. This is Coachella this is in the flesh. Yeah. This is Tupac. So this hologram show is of Elvis, Marilyn Monroe, and Judy Garland. Uh, now, Tex has what actually sh- added... A show. Yeah. Tex has actually added a note to his story outline. Okay. He says... What a weird selection of dead celebrities to choose. <laughs> there are a minimum 2,000 other celebrities I would have chosen before I hit Judy Garland. <laughs> yeah, I know. That is weird. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah, hologram performers are in this, this movie. This is great. They knew, they knew what was coming. Kevin. Yeah. So we're back to the medical car, and Scanlon and Ruby, they're standing over the dead body of Cobble. 
Scanlan, he looks around the hallways. They're empty. He begins to drag the body towards a different cage. And as he leaves, Ruby has a sudden realization. The flick, the switch, it remains flicked. The printout tells her that the creature's been getting shocked for three minutes and counting. Oh. She gasps, lunges for the switch, but it's too late. The chamber is opening. The creature has grown. It's getting out. What? Just because they left it on? It's, yeah, it's grown and grown and grown. Because of the electricity. Yeah. I thought the electricity was to subdue it, Cambo, not to make it stronger. I wouldn't dig too deep into the okay. logic of this script. Okay, 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 yeah, I'm going off track here. But the creature is now out. We see the first class dining. Can you just, is there any description? I'm still, I'm, I've just got this amorphous they're, sort of shape. They're, they're, you, you don't see it yet. Oh, okay, that's fine. Yeah. Okay. It's, yes, there are descriptions. Yeah, yeah. Back in the first class dining car, and someone actually takes something from Prime's dinner plate in the darkness of the, uh, the show that's going on. Brian, he sees this person and he kind of follows them through the first class cabins into the luggage car. He follows it to investigate. And in the dark, he bumps into a shadowy figure huffing and puffing as he tries to force something shut in the baggage chamber. It's Scanlan and he's trying to discard Corbold's body. Body. <laughs> Brian begins to apologize, thinking, oh, sorry, I've interrupted. And then he notices there's a puddle of blood. And instantly, he is struck by Scanlan too. And another brutal fight ensures. Hook and Sari actually start to enter the room because they hear this commotion, and that gives Scanlan enough time to run away. Uh, <laughs> I thought they were just going to keep killing people. Yeah. <laughs> just... Well, as Scanlan runs away, oh, and uh, Prine is still in the car, they burst into the room just as Corbal's lifeless body falls, falls out, out in front of Prine. Scanlan, he bursts into the medical car, still fleeing from his fight with Prine and yelling for Ruby. Ruby! The signs of a struggle. The open hyperbolic chamber. Ruby's shadow. He turns in time to find a tendril erupting from the wall, wrapping itself around his neck, and a fan-like appendage covering his face like a death mask. The creature makes a wailing noise even louder and more horrendous than the muffled screams of Scanlan. We cut to Esker and Lardner. The train is slowing down. They attempt to contact Ruby and Scanlan to give them further instructions, but there's no communication. There's no answer. What? So they're obviously trying to be like, what's going on? on?" Yeah, yeah, okay. We're now back with Sari and Hook, who have checked the identity of the man and appears to be Reggie Rossiter. That's yeah. the tickety stop. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. As Prine joins them again. What's going on? The train, without you. We're making an unscheduled stop in Salt Lake. That's where the late Mr. Reggie Rossiter gets put on ice and where you get charged with murder, assault, credit fraud, and theft. I don't think so. I just called my lawyers. <laughs> You know how big Isobar is? Our lawyers can lick your lawyers. My lawyers are your lawyers. Russell Prime, Executive Vice President, Consumer Relations. I work for Isobar too. Oh, doing what? Killing extraneous passengers to make room in the club car? I report directly to L.L. Dupree. The CEO? So this trip, you're what? On vacation or something? Certainly not, I'm working. You're telling me Isobar Lines pays you to ride first class and make a royal pain in the ass out of yourself? Yeah, that's pretty much it. We cut now. <laughs> Prine is in a small video booth talking to L.L. Dupree. Question the passengers. Delay the inaugural run to London. The other lines will love that, Prine, and so will the stockholders. But I'm not worried. I know how well you perform under pressure. So you're going to solve this in 30 seconds or you're fired. 30 seconds? 25 now. Feel inspired yet? The train can't stay here. Absolutely, definitely can't stay. Hold that thought and I'll hold the count. 20 seconds. 
We have a schedule to keep. Our reputation, huh? The reputation of the American people, workers, world in the trade, heads across the sea of international. This is big, giant, bigger than any one individual, that guy. You've sold me, Prime. Now sell it to the Mormon Mafia and get my train to London. In the meantime, consider your termination. On hold. Thank you, Mrs. Dupree. You won't regret. I Biofeedback. Biofeedback. Back on the train platform, reporters everywhere as Prime pushes his way back through them. You can't pull the passengers off this train. There's 450 people aboard. 449. I don't give a rat's ass about your precious schedule. Uh, excuse me, officer. Where's Prime? Executive VP, Consumer Relations. I survived that. Captain Noah Young, Salt Lake City PD. You her boss? No. Yes. There's more here than just a schedule, Captain. This train is a symbol of American perseverance. The first non-stop trip to Europe since the jets were grounded. The whole world is crashing. This could be the first step in this nation's climb back up to the summit of international status and respect. Japan and Europe had enough headlines. Tomorrow, I want the world to say, America's back! Not America didn't show up! That's the biggest pile of horse shit I've ever heard in my life. Yes, sir. I guess it is. What is it? Your this train on my authority. I'll conduct the investigation aboard it between here and the Canadian border. Captain Young, you don't know what this means. Wanna bet? Come on, let's get on board. We gotta keep moving. So you followed this stowaway and he attacked you? Alleged stowaway. If one were really aboard, it would be a serious violation of Isobar policy. That makes total of eight mystery. I don't think a stowaway jumped. He looked like a wired kid. No, the man who jumped me was bigger than me, 200 pounds, I think. I think brown here, it was pretty dark back there. There's about five men in first class that fit that description. They were all ID'd when they bought tickets. I'll check the computer. Hey, is Michael Jackson really on board? Here we go. These two are in the club car, so you can eliminate them. That rules out Tony and Essaker. I assume you can vouch for him? Never met the man. Both doctors were assigned to me this morning. Let's keep going. This way, Captain. What was that crack about eight violations? Late departure, poor bar service, rush safety briefing, failure to note medical alert, failure to provide alternate meal, failure to clear safe, stowaway on board of base blossom patios instead of desert sand. That's good for you, nice boy, trust I gotta run in my last pair of desert sand. But almost all the others, they were your fault. You mean because I was the difficult passenger? Difficult? You were the worst passenger I've ever seen. Thank you. Do you think you can put that in your report at the employment review? It would look really good on my record. We're here. Medical car is through there. I'll open it.
So, <laughs> oh my god, Kevin! Obviously, there's a lot of information that comes through in that scene. But can I just can I shout out to, to the the music choices? Very good, nineties. You like the synthy right. kind yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I've gone for a very VHS. Yeah, no, you'd rented you've from Blockbuster. Well. You've done line. well. Uh, yeah, three nights. Yeah, 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 yeah. New, possibly new to weekly. Really? Okay, possibly. possibly. <laughs> so, so Prine is working for Isabel. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because I was just going to say this. Like his character is ultimately meant to be like a, a pencil pushing, yep. like this is, this executive is I type. To bring up. Yeah, Casting. so he specifically said he didn't want it to be Rambo, sci-fi Rambo. But yeah, and funnily enough, this is something that Stallone was big on, which is because D'Souza wrote Die Hard, and and Stallone said what works so well about Die Hard is he's a normal, normal guy. guy. So yeah. he didn't want to be a big action hero type. So he apparently was pushing for like, make me like a pencil pusher, make me like. A, oh, okay. So this is be, from him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, they, well yeah. that's exactly what they've written. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's such an odd Stallone character, isn't it? Yeah. Like, massively. But something they also do point out is he's very good at reading people because he's in marketing essentially. So for instance, he does the big speech to the cop. And as soon as the cop doesn't buy it, he switches tactics to yeah. be like, look, I, go, I really help me out. Yeah. And, He's very good at working out what people want. Okay. Yeah, he's a kind of duplicitous character. And so, the, yeah, the train had to stop, but now it's on the move again. Yeah, but Captain Young, Salt City Captain Young is on yeah. the train with them. The Mormon mafia. <laughs> they enter the car, the medical car, and it's in absolute disarray. The open hyperbolic chamber. The door swing opens to reveal Ruby's withered and dried husk of a corpse. It falls forward and shatters as it hits the floor, seemingly drained of all moisture. Oh. Sari screams and backs away, hitting a gurney, revealing Scanlan's body in much the same state, dust falling off his entire body as it rocks to one side, dry as parchment, as though mummified. As the four of them scan the body, the floor suddenly erupts and the creature bursts forth. A sea of whirling tendrils, one headed for each of the car's four inhabitants. We get a small action scene here full of near scrapes Crips, and the tentacles yeah. almost hitting gunshots and near misses gunshots? yeah they're, they're the Captain Young oh, is he's shooting at the creature yeah. the body of the creature starting to descend back into the floor now as one of the tendrils whips out grabbing Detective Young on the way down more and more grab at him a combination of slurping and crunching sounds his limbs going from flesh to the same texture of withered autumn leaves the others watch in horror as he's pulled down the hole with the monster, covered in tentacles. His body's slowly drying out. With his last bit of energy, before he's consumed, he raises his only working arm, a handgun. Puts to his head and he fires, killing himself. The creature disappears with Young's body under the floor. Sorry, who can prime? I left to survey the damage. He, so sh he should have gone, he should have gone. I'm so thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> as you see, straight down. So that's what this says. So a big tentacled creature. This is cra this is and this it, is crazy. It wraps this, around people off. and yeah. it just yeah, it sucks, sucks all the moisture. Out. Yeah, yeah. the husks dry. The, husks yeah, exactly. Left behind. But yeah, that's what the creature. It's it's kind of like a big tentacled monster, yeah. and it kind of changes shape throughout the script because it's ever evolving. So what are we what are we looking at? The thing that was on that movie, Life. It is kind of like the thing. Yeah. That it, 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll hit the bell for you. Yeah, you just kind of yeah. like to think that's in the uh, movie life. Yeah, good. Okay, thank you. So we cut to Reggie and Debbie. They're obviously the rich assholes. Uh, and they finally made their way up to first class. They've slowly oh, made their way to the train. Yeah. And Reggie's card declines at the bar. It's been cancelled. It appears that the bank has cancelled all of his cards because he's dead. They found his oh, body. Oh, body. Oh, and he already got... Yeah. Oh, this is... Uh... So the TV plays in the background and a news report of his passing. His company that he had founded and runs, which is effectively like a privatised orphanage that sells children to people because there's like an infertility thing. Oh, yeah. So if you want kids, you kind of have to buy them buy from him. Oh. <laughs> it's had a huge stock raise in value since his death. And Reggie, with the help of his young girlfriend, realises that, man, he's been a colossal dick his whole life. And his whole life has been about chasing wealth and treating people poorly, and he starts a bit of soul searching. Oh. That is a plot that kind of goes on. I'll only ever weave it in when it's around. Okay. We're now walking through the train uh, from the medical car where the big fight just happened back to first class. Hook, Sari, and Prine, they're discussing what they should do. They can't tell the passengers and alarm them, but they also can't stop to evacuate. They're about to hit the biggest patch of wasteland left in the world. There's not enough oxygen to survive. Three hours to Quebec is the next logical stop. But they're worried that the creature will it'll strike again. We also hear um, Esker and Lardner. They overhear this and they think, oh no, like it's got out. So yeah. obviously because they've been, they've been working in there somewhere. So now Sari and Prine are discussing where the creature might attack again and, and what they need to do. Public access seems secure, but, but this bilge area runs through the rest of the entire train. And so does this crawl space above and below the first-class flexitunnels. If it gets in there... It can get anywhere. We'd better get all the first-class passengers in one place and seal off these areas. I'm the purser. I'll make the announcement. I'm a corporate VP. I'll... Look, do you really want to tell the passengers that there's a monster on board that can shrivel them up until they look like a giant raisin? You're right, that's pretty unbelievable bullshit. Definitely your specialty. I'll make the announcement. You'll do the briefing. Uh. Attention, all passengers and crew, attention. An emergency situation has arisen aboard the Transpolar Flyer. Although there is no immediate danger, we request that all first-class passengers proceed forward to the club in observation cars. You may bring one piece of hand luggage. Public access passengers are to stay in their compartment until further notice. Isobar personnel will give you further instructions when you arrive. We don't know what this thing is, but where it came from. It's already killed three people. Right now it's barricaded in the medical car. And if it gets out there, it has two baggage cars ahead of it before it gets to us. Dear, would you mind telling me who's responsible for this? Because you will be hearing from my lawyer. Yeah, mine too! Let's survive first and sue later, okay? Now the plan is very simple. Keep this creature bottled up until we reach the next station. That's Quebec in, in less than three hours. The authorities will take over from there. We don't know if this thing's smart enough to figure out how to move around the train. So we're gonna post guards at every crawl space and access hatchway just in case. Our only security officer is watching the medical car. So we're going to need some volunteers. So this is where our characters start to all connect. Yeah. Because obviously Reggie, he's been soul searching. So he goes, you know what? 
I'm going to help. Oh. And uh, it, there's various other characters like um, the Sophia Loren style old uh, old uh, movie star yep. character. She says, oh, I'll help as well. And um, this is where all the storylines start to intersect. So it's interesting that they that they just told all the passengers. Yeah. Like that there's a monster on board killing yeah. people. It, yeah. Like in... Uh, I mean, usually in a film, they'd try and lie and be like, oh, we're just going to do this and stuff. But they want them to help. Yeah. So it's an interesting. Yeah. Yeah. This dynamic. idea that like yeah. together, they'll be yeah. way more effective than if they're all separate. I cannot wait till it gets in the air ducts <laughs> and they've got a little thing that yeah. has a beeper that follows. where <laughs> It's it in the room right now. Yeah. 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 Good. Look Good. up. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, a group of people all volunteer. The main characters all been introduced to us. They, they all start volunteering. Suddenly the roof ducks run. Oh. So people are scared. But suddenly, in swings, Gibbs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a thought. And he is also eager to help. But if he's going to help, he needs to talk to Prine and Sari first. They kind of scuttle off into one of the little hallways, and he begins to tell them something. The man you fought tonight was no friend of mine. You'll have to do better than that. We have the same enemies, I think. Though your worst one is you. We're not talking about me. Don't be so touchy, Prime. I thought that last part was very insightful. And you are the same. You work hard to be strong and never use your strength, so your body consumes itself. Here. Gibran pokes Prime in the stomach. You are full of power and anger, but are forbidden to use either because you cater to fools. All you city people are the same. At least my people can take off our masks. Let's save the group therapy for later. Gibran notices some food. Prine slides it towards him. I do not know the one you fought, but the other two? I've seen them kill. Other two? The ones who killed my uncle in Burbank. They paid him to watch their building. In food, water, oxygen. But he didn't like the sounds that came from the beasts they took there. He called it the House of Pain. Whoa, back up. What was that about, beasts? They took animals there. Plants, too. And covered glass cages. And instruments and chemicals. A laboratory. We're based at the forbidden zone outside Nulay. Totally tough. You insult my thief? I am the mayor of Burbank, and I demand redress. Easy, Your Honor. I'm in no harm. You say they're on board? Can you identify them? I'm... I'm not certain. Their faces were covered when I saw them. But their bodies... I've recognized them once. I could again when I see their forms, their movements, the nuance of their gestures. Give me a break. No, wait. I've heard this. The Bedoas have a gift for it. All right, kid. You're on the payroll. Keep your eyes open. Weird kid. Polite, though. <laughs> He's got a good little cadence of someone that lives above ground. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. Recognizing movements and gestures. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah this thing that, like, yeah, the Bedell was uh, like, they're kind of like these, like, very weirdly spiritual people. Yeah. They, well, it'd be also because they have to cover themselves yeah. so much that you don't get the f- expressions from yeah, their that's faces and some of that, so that you'd have to be yeah. more in tune with body language. Yeah, you recognize them yeah, for yeah. how they move. That's just, I'm just looking. reading into that, but it no, makes but sense. I, I, yeah. I hadn't really thought of that, yeah. but yeah, probably true. So this is where we are at the moment. Creature on the loose. Yep. The passengers starting oh to, to gear up, but also we know that someone on the train is working against yes, them. them. 
Well, we have come to the end of part one of our Cancel Movie Report on Isobar. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we would love it if you could subscribe, be it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you like to listen. That really helps us get discovered in the charts. It would also be terrific if you could leave us a five-star rating, or most importantly of all, tell a friend. If you did want to leave a five-star rating, even if you have an example of something that someone could say. Best movie pod going round. It's insightful and funny. And just incredibly professionally put together. We've never been funny in our lives. No, <laughs> or incredibly professional. No. <laughs> <laughs> Always finish having felt like I've actually just watched these movies. Ooh. Definitely worth checking out and giving a run, though. Wow. Um, that was from Fake Tex. Fake, well, yes. how, how do we know that he's real? Then? Well, this, you'll this never know. This review is null and void. You'll now. never know. <laughs> fake text, you could say the opposite of what he feels. But thank you very much, Fake text. If you did want to support the show, uh, you can also join us over on Patreon. We have a whole bonus podcast there all about the casting process. And we add people that were nearly cast in the movies back into those movies. It's a lot of fun. What do you think of the movie so far? And have we missed anything? We would love to hear from you. You can always get in touch with us via cancelmovies at gmail.com or at cancelmovies on all the socials. And if there's a cancelled movie project you've always wanted to hear about, just let us know. You can fill out a form in the episode description and we may just give it the cancelled movie report treatment. David Hughes, we cannot thank you enough for joining us. Amazing. And we look forward to hearing from you next week about how this all went wrong. Thanks for having me. I'm Michael Campbell. I've hosted and edited this episode and Eden Porter was my co-host too. Cheers, Cambo. We both produced the show. We also have to thank our amazing voice class, which included Mark Sanders as Prime, Danny Silla as Sari, Jay Zeta as Gibran, Michael Hahn as Captain Young. Make sure you're listening next week as we see what happens to the creature on the train. But if you need a little sneak peek, here's a preview. Tell him to speed up! Speed up? Are you insane? I know the train's back. It's the only chance. The pencil pusher says to speed up. It might work. But until then, 